now and then, here and there, and always at sexpotcomedy.com. Hi, it's Mary here. March is a big month for the narrators in both San Diego and Denver. For starters, I'm excited to announce collaboration between the narrators San Diego and Finest City Improv on a monthly show starting Saturday, March 19th called Moment of Truth. Moment of Truth will be improvised five-minute stories told on themes chosen by the audience at Finest City Improv. If you haven't been there, Finest City is located in the Lafayette Hotel on beautiful El Cajon Boulevard. Tickets and more information can be found at their website, which is finestcityimprov.com. We look forward to seeing you there in March and every month thereafter. As always, the San Diego Narrator Show happens on the second Tuesday of every month. Uh, It'll be March 8th this month at Tiger Tiger Tavern in North Park. The theme is Ouch! And it might just be our best lineup of storytellers yet. Even more exciting is the Denver show happening Wednesday, March 16th at the Bumport Theater, also on the theme, Ouch. This is the sixth anniversary of the narrators. It will feature Andrew Overdahl, the show's creator, Robert Rutherford, and many more narrators Denver favorites. So come celebrate with us in Denver. Next storyteller. Our next storyteller. Next storyteller. Our next storyteller. Welcome to the Narrators Podcast. This podcast collects stories that were told at the Narrators, a monthly storytelling event that features people telling true stories based on a theme. So we always struggle choosing which stories to share on the podcast since we don't post all of them. But I found these two stories to be so complimentary that I insisted they play together. These stories, told on the theme DIY or die, reveal the inner lives of two unique women doing something they are afraid of. They embody the punk rock ethos of do-it-yourself, but with the unspoken caveat, never alone. I was struck by their courage and their vulnerability, and I hope that you are too. These stories, the first told by Ellen Wright, the second by Laurel Posacani, were recorded on February 9th at Tiger Tiger Tavern in San Diego. So, our next storyteller is an aspiring eccentric who's always on the lookout for her next obsession Please welcome Ellen Wright. If you need to go up or down, should be good. Should be about right. If I'm completely honest, I started rebuilding my motorcycle to try to impress a boy. My feminist self is not completely comfortable with this, but I'm a boy crazy feminist and a bitterly hopeless romantic. And yes, I started rebuilding my motorcycle to try to impress a boy. He proved to be a total jerk before I ever got started, but his voyeurism of motorcycle culture reminded me of my dad's 1976 Honda CB550 Supersport. My dad had bought it new a few months before he and my mom started dating, and she would ride on the back in shorts and a bikini top. Her last ride was when she was six months pregnant with me and had a sudden vision of the two of them dying in a fiery wreck, leaving behind pitiful orphans. Her refusal to ride led to my dad's eventual abandonment of the motorcycle for bicycles, which the two rode together, and which led to my mom crashing into the side of a semi-truck, so so much for her theory of safer hobbies. Twenty years under a tarp later, every bit of the Honda was rusted. The tires barely kept the rims off the ground, and countless mummified spiders were entombed within its tangles of wires and cables. My brother had had it for the past five years, and had talked about fixing it up and we'd talked about fixing it up together. At one point, it had been offered to a bike-building friend of my brother's for 250 bucks, but he passed, saying it wasn't worth it. I didn't know any better. 
And so it was that I found myself in my brother's Chula Vista garage on a Tuesday in August of 2013, armed with the climber's manual and my dad's toolbox. I broke the first bolt I touched by forcing it the wrong way. But by the end of that first day, I learned how to get a motorcycle onto a rear stand, used a socket wrench for the first time, and found myself in love. To say I had never done anything like this was an understatement. I'd never so much as changed the oil in my car. I was a hairdresser, for Christ's sake. And that was a lot of what I loved. It was so different from anything I had done. And because I didn't know what I was doing, I didn't see any reason why I couldn't do it. I was in the garage every moment of my free time. It's not difficult to tear apart something you don't understand. And within a few weeks, I had ripped the bike down to the frame. Just as I started on the motorcycle, I met a guy who rode and wrenched on mopeds. Not knowing anything of either, I didn't think the two were all that different. And as he gave me words of encouragement and advice, I was grateful to have someone with mechanical experience in my corner, even if he did insist that no one ever needed anything bigger than 100 cc's. Over months, our friendship became more, and I was so enamored with the idea of building a bike with my boyfriend. I moved the pieces into his bedroom and dreamed of spending time together in the garage, making, making something together, and eventually going on adventures together. Only it wasn't like it was in my head. I gave up trying to do things for myself and expected him to tell me what to do and how to do it. Getting him to do anything other than sit on his couch and smoke bong load after bong load became increasingly difficult, and by his own admission, he was severely depressed. When we did work together on the bike, it was torturous. If I didn't do exactly as he said, he yelled. If the work didn't go as planned, he threw things. If he got frustrated, he punched himself in the head. He once made comment on how much attention I would get once the motorcycle was finished, and I questioned if he really wanted that to happen. Are you kidding, he said? I've always wanted a girlfriend who ride, rode a motorcycle. But progress was happening, however slowly or painfully. For my birthday in November, this was 2014, he promised to rebuild my engine. About this time, things took a major and steady downturn, and over the next few months, I began to not only seriously consider ending the relationship, but to seriously consider how difficult doing so was going to be. He told me the part of the engine he could do was done. It ended up being a much bigger project than originally anticipated, as moisture had at some point gotten in and wreaked havoc. But when I wanted to move it along to the next step, he became defensive and evasive, accusing me of asking too many questions and pressuring him. One day I had the thought, I'll just stick it out until the motorcycle's done. And that was it. As soon as I had that thought, I knew it was over. I was sickened at the idea of using him for something he wasn't even capable of providing. He tried holding the motorcycle hostage, but eventually let my brother pick it up. The engine was at a motorcycle shop where he used to work, and when I went to get it, not only was it not done, but it had hardly been started. I spent five hours that afternoon scrubbing the top end with a toothbrush, and it was the best day I'd had in months. Not long after, I met a guy who offered to take me out for drinks and help me finish my bike. I can build my own motorcycle, I replied, looking him in the eye. And the surprising thing was I believed it. There's always a strange low tide effect at the end of a relationship where I can't seem to remember what I ever did with myself. It's not as though I've never been single, and if anything, I cherish my independence. But there's always that awkward remembering. And in the past, I filled it with drugs or meaningless sex or theater-hopping marathons at the movies. This time, I moved the bike into my mom's garage. Also around this time, the anxiety I had been experiencing for months gave way to depression. The motorcycle gave me a reason to get out of bed. I began living for Sundays, 
My mom's not a big fan of motorcycles, but she's a huge fan of mine. And we soon fell into a pleasant routine of homemade vegan brunches followed by hours of working on our respective projects. We'd blast the beetles and drink margaritas. She'd plant succulent gardens and yell at me for not wearing a mask while painting. <laughs> I wanted to build my own motorcycle, but I had no idea what I was doing. Books and forums and YouTube are fabulous resources, but without the basic fundamentals, they only frustrated me more. The most difficult part wasn't knowing how to do something, but knowing what to do. The panic would take over at the times when I could do the least, lying in bed in the middle of the night or on my way to work. There were days when I went into the garage and simply sat dazed, staring at the dozens of baggies of rusted nuts and bolts. Some baggies I had labeled when I took things off the bike two years prior. Others I had simply marked left or right side rear thingy or <laughs> with a question mark. Some I didn't bother marking at all, and on others, the Sharpie had since faded away. At these times, I do my best to break it down, way down. The, th the thought of building a motorcycle would send my heart into my bowels, so I wouldn't think of it as building a motorcycle. I would just be sanding a spring, or adjusting the float levels on the carburetors, or painting the airbox. I could handle that. I had initially met the man who was to become my moto guru just as I was starting on the Honda. He was the husband of one of my oldest friend's oldest friends, and he had been riding and building bikes since before I was born. I'd always had trouble asking for help, seeing it as an admission of weakness. But no one pops onto the planet knowing how to do this sort of thing, and there was no shame in turning to someone who'd already learned. He was happy to help, and the balance was ideal. He would visit the garage for an hour or so every couple months, and would bring me tools to borrow or giving me whatever hands-on help I needed would list what could happen next. I took notes and I got to work feeling supported, but independent. I hunted for replacement parts online and cleaned and repaired what was salvageable. I still had days when I cried out of frustration and exhaustion or was bruised and bleeding from just beating on shit with a hammer. But I never really thought of quitting. And my mentor gave me words of hope just as valuable as the mechanical knowledge. And suddenly, my motorcycle started looking a whole lot like a motorcycle. For the first time, I started having a vision of what I wanted the finished bike to look like. Parts went back on. Some of them painted a bright pink, much to my dad's dismay. <laughs> that is not stock, <laughs> he said of the roses I painted on the instrument panel. When he scoffed that my hot pink engine flanges were not right, I retorted that he had let things sit under a tarp for two decades and had, in doing so, lost his right to criticize. When he gave me the pink slip for my 2015 birthday, and I transferred the title, I was surprised at how proud I was at seeing my name as the registered owner. And in spite of all the grief he gives me over all the pink, I know he's proud of me too. Just a couple weeks ago, I hauled the motorcycle, her name's Gail, by the way, out of the garage and into the sunny driveway. I tucked away some wires and put on her headlight. I saddled up her tank and side covers without their final Honda hardware, but with a brand new paint job. And I saw my motorcycle 99% finished. Not running, but looking how she's going to look when she is. I'm still trying to wrap my mind around the transformation from a stationary object in a garage to a beast that will move and make noise and give back. But she's beautiful. My mom says so. So here we are, two and a half years after this story began. And I'm not done. And I'm okay with that. Now that the end is in sight, I'm clinging to every last bit of it. I have a new set of fears. Not that I won't finish, but that I won't be happy when I do. I'm afraid I'll miss the process more than I'll enjoy the result. 
I'm worried I've put too much pressure on a simple machine. That when it doesn't miraculously make all my problems disappear, I'll be let down. But I'll never truly be done. There will be adjustments to make, maintenance to do, cosmetic changes to obsess over. So maybe there's a deranged sort of comfort in that, in knowing I'll never truly be finished or satisfied. Because how boring would that be? That's Ellen Wright. So our next storyteller is a regular at Finest City Improv and at Side Stage, and she is about to improvise her story. So we're in for a treat. Please welcome Laurel Passacone. Yeah, so, oh, sorry, guys. Uh, I'm used to improv comedy, but the story I want to tell tonight is very much not comedy for me because I want to talk about recovering from an eating disorder, which statistically is something a few of you might have done. Uh, and if you don't know what that's like, I would say it's different for every person because no one's experience is the same. And for me, it was going days without eating, and it was knowing how many calories are in a cherry tomato, and it was throwing up in friends' toilets and hiding and crying and just feeling ashamed. And despite all of those behaviors, I didn't know I had an eating disorder. I had no clue. I thought I was just me. And the first person to tell me that I had a problem was a dermatologist. <laughs> I came in because I've always had chronic acne. And so we had our whole uh, doctor's appointment. And at the end, uh, he asked my dad if he would leave the room. And he said, uh, this guy looks exactly like Mitt Romney. Like, just... <laughs> The spitting image, so if you can imagine this as Mitt Romney speaking to me, uh, he said, uh, this is not my place, this feels weird, but you're like, uh, like a toothpick kid, and that, that seems bad, like you're like really underweight, do you know that? And I was like, I, uh, I don't know, I guess, I guess I'm kind of thin, always been like that, which was a lie. So I left. And I started to think and sort of entertain this idea, like, okay, suppose I have a problem eating. Like, let's just entertain for a second that that's true. Maybe it is, you know? Maybe I'm not eating the way that everyone else is. Maybe I'm hiding, and maybe I am ashamed. But it, it wasn't something I wanted to deal with yet. It, there's so much putting it off, because I think when you truly have a problem, it's never enough. You're like, I'm never sick enough. More people have suffered more than me, and I, I'm not done being suffering. <laughs> and so uh, around this time, I was dating this girl, and her name was Marie, and I loved her so much. She was the first person I'd ever fallen in love with. And on our third date, uh, I remember we had just gone to this restaurant called The Loving Hut, but not the one near here, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> the other one. But it's like equally as good and like culty. It's, it's amazing. Uh, <laughs> and we were walking around uh, inside of Barnes & Noble that's near that loving hut. And she's picking up all of these Shakespeare books because she's so passionate about Shakespeare. Uh, she's a theater major now, so I hope she's having a great time. But um, as I'm walking around and I'm talking to her, I feel heavy like physically heavy, because I've just eaten a huge meal and we had dessert and I'm trying to be a person 
for this girl because I like her so much because she's cute and she likes Shakespeare, which is a weird thing to be into when you're like 14. And I was like, yeah, I want I want to feel normal. And she can tell that something's off because I'm like my stomach hurts and I'm walking around like with my head down and she says, what's wrong? And I said, I forgot (laughs) what it feels like to digest, to really digest. And I, I hate it. I hate that feeling. And that you could just see like broke her heart a little bit because here she was meeting someone who she really wanted to get to know, but she could already see this is going to be tough, you know? No matter how this goes, this is going to be tough for us. Uh, so I started to entertain the idea, like, yeah, maybe this is a real problem. But you know what? I'm going to fix it myself because I, I can do that. I can recover from an eating disorder. I mean, how easy is that going to be, right? I'm just going to, like, eat cheese? That's, I can do that. I mean, it's hard, but I can do it. And so I tried. Guys, I tried so much. Like, I, every day would force myself to eat and not weigh myself. And I stopped counting calories and I was like, I can do this. And the days that it worked, it worked so well. It worked, like I felt amazing. And I felt like, God, I can do this and I can fall in love and I can be so happy. But the days that it didn't work, it did not work. I mean, those were the worst. Those were days without eating. It was drinking water only. It was making weird jokes like, ugh, I'm starving, guys. Let's go eat. But not doing it. And it was horrible. And it reached a point where I realized I couldn't recover on my own. Like, if I was going to do this, I really needed help. And I remember at school one day, I hadn't eaten in, I think, three days. And I went to the farmer's market because our school has this farmer's market which is like quirky and I love it. Uh, And I got a nectarine, which is my favorite fruit. And that was the one food that even if I would go like uh, days without eating, I could always eat a nectarine. And that was like my safe food is what we call it, which is so funny. We have like eating disorder terminology. Uh, But I bought a nectarine and I went back to my psychology class and I just held it. And I kept trying to force myself to eat it because I had always been able to before. I mean, a nectarine has 60 calories, 80 at most. So really, it's nothing. But I couldn't do it. And I started to cry just sitting in class because I was like, what is this? You know, how, how can I not just be? And my friend Aiden came up to me as I was leaving class. And he's like, I can tell you're upset and we don't know each other that well or whatever, but I just need you to tell me like what's going on. And I just started crying and I said, Aiden, I uh, rarely eat food and I can't eat this nectarine and I don't know what I'm doing or how I'm gonna fix this. And he just took me in his arms and gave me the biggest hug and he said, we're gonna go back to my house and we're gonna talk this out. And so he drove me to his house and he cut me up a bowl of fruit that included my nectarine and I ate it and we talked. And it turns out Aiden has been recovering from an eating disorder since he was like a little kid, which is pretty rare, but like at six, he decided that he was fat, which is terrible. And he was able to share this experience and he said, I know this great therapist, her name's Katie and like she's gonna do incredible things for you and I really want you to see her. And so I was like, okay, because I, I wanted to be happy. I was like, yeah, 
honestly, I'm done. Like, I'm, uh, this is a nectarine and I'm done. <laughs> so I started seeing her and it was, it was amazing. You know, it's the worst because you take your parents in to this room and this like woman who doesn't know you tries to like make first impressions and you have to say all the things you've been hiding. Like, you have to tell her that you do these weird things like you throw up in people's toilets or you like hide food under your bed but you don't eat it like you have to like say that out loud to a person and it's very bizarre but when you choose to be in recovery it's a really nice feeling because you're like yeah what whatever happens next is better (laughs) and typically it is you know for a long time it is it's hard every day you wake up and you're like, oh, I have to like be a functioning person. <laughs> That's awful. Uh, but it's good. It really is. But for all the ups that you have, there are back downs again. And I remember thinking, I'm not going to be someone who relapses a lot. That w- I was like, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> uh, and I was so wrong. I was so wrong. <laughs> uh, because every time it's like two steps forward, one step back. And then, you know, three back or three forward, one back. And it like eventually you're getting somewhere. But really, it takes a while. And uh, I remember Thanksgiving where I was like, I'm I'm in recovery. I'm recovered. I've got this. And I went uh, to my grandma's house and we have these huge elaborate Thanksgivings, which I used to hate as someone who did not like eating. So I would like fast for like a week prior to sitting with my family. And they're the worst because they're the types of people who will like ask you about what you're eating and like say things about the way you look. And I was like, I don't know. Also, I was gay and I hadn't told them that. That's a separate point. Uh, (laughs) But I was like, I am like so not prepared to do this. And I got there and I like sat down at the table and everyone's there and I just said, Oh, nope. And I left. I just left and I started walking. And I really don't know Orange County that well, but you can find a Starbucks anywhere. So I went to the Starbucks and I like camped out there for hours. My parents are calling me and I'm just like, I I can't, like, I can't do it. I'm going to sit in the Starbucks. And when you guys are done having this like adorable Thanksgiving, I have to go home. Uh, And I called my friend Zoe, who lives in San Diego, who I met through improv, because improv is magic. And I said, Zoe, like, you know that I've got stuff going on. You know how hard this is for me. Like, I'm in Orange County right now, and it sucks, and I just want to talk on the phone to someone. And she said, oh, do you want to talk in my apartment? Because I will go get you. And I was like, oh, yeah. Like, yes, I want to spend Thanksgiving with you guys, with, like, my improv family who's going to be there for whatever it is they're not going to ask me about eating we're just going to talk and so she came and she got me and I had Thanksgiving with my friends and it was so nice it was the first time that I felt like there were really people there for me because I think when you're going through something people will say to you like hey I'm there for you I got your back like I'm here to listen and it's always true they're never lying but it hits you and it bounces right back off of you you're like yeah you're there for me sure thanks but you don't really take them up on it uh but that was the first time that it really sunk in people give a shit about you they really do and now here i am you know i i'm trying every day and i feel like i'm really deep into recovery and still like if i'm honest with y'all i don't like my body It's hard. It's hard to like yourself. 
And so I'm still going to my therapist and I said, Katie, listen, I don't throw up in people's toilets. I don't hide food under my bed and I've forgotten how many calories are in a cherry tomato, but I don't like myself, honestly. And she said, we're not done. We might never be done, but are you alive? And I said, yeah, yeah, I am. Thank you guys. That's Laurel. Thanks, Laurel. Narrators is produced by Robert Rutherford, Mary Robertson, Aaron Rollman, and me, Ron Doyle. Our intern is Sydney Crane. Our theme music is by Whalehawk. And our founder and executive producer is Andrew Orvidal. Very special thanks to our amazing sponsors, Lego Pete's, Greater Than Records, Sexy Pizza, Sexbot Comedy, From the Hip Photo, and Breckenridge Brewery. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And join us at one of our live monthly shows, which take place every second Tuesday of the month at Tiger Tiger Tavern in San Diego, California, and every third Wednesday of the month at Bumport Theater in Denver, Colorado. Both shows start at 8 p.m. and are always free to attend. You can find us on Facebook or Twitter. And for past episodes, photos from our live shows, and a list of our upcoming events and themes, please visit thenarrators.org. Thanks for listening.